0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say that we have Fred Speer on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Big History and the Future of Humanity. If you think about it, everything is historical, and that includes things in the physical sciences. For example, chemistry wouldn't be the way it is today if not for things that happened before. Had those things occurred differently, then chemistry either would not exist or it would be very different than it is today. Most historians don't usually think about these sorts of things. We leave them to, say, chemists, but not Fred Speer. He and those who practice big history have attempted, and I think successfully, to tell the story of everything that is from the moment our universe appeared billions of years ago down to the present. And I think Fred does a really terrific job of it here. He has a unifying theory, which I will allow him to explain in the course of the interview. And so, without further delay, here it is. Hi, Fred. Hi, Marshall. How
1: are you today? I'm good.
0: How are you? Good. I'm very well. You are in Amsterdam, is that correct?
1: That is correct.
0: I should tell our listeners that we have... Fred Spear on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, uh, Big History and the Future of Humanity. I read this book cover to cover. Sometimes I have to tell you, Fred, I had to read it twice because some of the things in it were so eye-opening. I really that I was I was taken aback by some of the things I learned from your book. But I I really enjoyed it, and I encourage everybody to go out and read it and buy it. Actually, I have a few words to say about buying it to the publisher of it, but we'll talk about that in due time. Why don't we begin the interview by having you, Fred? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, I was born and raised in in the Netherlands. I'm still living here. Um, I studied biochemistry first and was involved in what was known as genetic engineering at the time, genetic engineering of plants. And then I uh, changed course and became a cultural anthropologist and a social historian. and I did research into uh, religion and politics in Peru, and I lived as part of that in a little Andean village, the village is called Zurite. Uh, that's what I uh, first did my study on later, my PhD, and became two books in the end. And, yeah, and since that time, it's about... 15 years ago, I started teaching big history, and big history is the history of everything from the beginning of the universe until life on the earth, right here, right now.
0: Right. Before we talk about the origin of the book, I know I told you in the pre-interview we were going to talk about that, and we will, but could you tell us a little bit about the origins of uh, big history and what it is? And I know it involves a person that I know quite well and admire, David Christian, but why don't you tell the story?
1: Yes. Uh well, big history in the form that I'm uh, teaching it and working with uh, originated in Australia in the end of the 1980s in, uh, in the form of a, a cross-disciplinary course. And that course was designed by the historian David Christian, who at a certain point in time felt there was a need for a course that could serve as an introductory course for uh, students of history that would basically give an overview of all of history, not of history only as historians usually um, define it. That means, let's say, the history of literate people, but all of history from the beginning of the universe until life on the earth today. And he did that by designing a course in which all the different sections were Uh, told by specialists. So an astronomer would lecture on the origin and evolution of the universe and uh, the uh, emergence of the solar system. Geologists would talk about uh, development of the earth plate tectonics, the whole bit. And a biologist would uh, explain uh, natural selection and how life became more diverse on the earth. And then uh, historians or first paleoanthropologists would kick in, telling about how uh, early humans emerged and then in the end historians would take over and tell the rest of the story. So it proved to be an enormously uh, successful course model because let's say the organizer, David, learned an awful lot from it in a very short period of time and also it was very good for let's say, for teaching uh, students because they would see that all these different disciplines can explain their part in language that was easy to understand and uh, accessible, uh, interesting, and they could see the relevance right away of all these uh, different aspects of history for their own existence. So it worked really well in in Australia, at Macquarie University in Sydney. And then my former supervisor, Joop Goudsbrom, happened to visit uh, Macquarie University in 1993, end of 1992. And in 1993, he brought back the syllabus, and he asked me to start uh, organizing such a course in Amsterdam. So that's what we did. And it also was, uh, I think, pretty successful here from the start and we've been doing it ever since. Now I'm teaching three different big history courses in this country.
0: Mm -hmm. And so are you teaching them at three different universities or are they three different sorts of courses?
1: (laughs) No, three different uh, universities, one that's could say. One at the University of Amsterdam, that's our, let's say, our traditional course now. Mm-hmm. Then we do a shortened version at the Technical University Eindhoven. Eindhoven is a, the original home base of the Philips uh, Electronics Company. Uh, and now for second year, I'm doing it also at what's called Amsterdam University College, which is some kind of a elite university where the language is not Dutch but English, Mm. meant for international students. Mm,
0: I see, I see. So uh, in addition to you and David Christian, um, who else does big history?
1: Well, I think uh, David was not the only inventor of the concept. He invented the term, big history. Mm A bit of a flippant mood, or so he said, <laughs> and he still has some doubts about whether it is too pretentious or whatever. But uh, there were other pioneers, also. I think one of the major main pioneers was the astrophysicist Eric Chason at Tufts University, mm-hmm. who started a course in cosmic evolution. I think in 1975 already, together with the astronomer George Field. And also this course has been running ever since. He did that at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that course, uh, let's say the main focus was on, let's say, evolution of the cosmos, but also to some extent on human history. But its its emphasis is more on, on that. But it, you could say it's also an encompassing course, and it was, I think, a major initiative. And also, I think... Eric has written a number of very enlightening books. He's definitely one of the big pioneers of this uh, project. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, I think there were several pioneers, like uh, Sigmund Cutter at Evergreen College, um, and also uh, John Mears at Southern Methodist University, who started a big history course all by himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was not with all these different uh, teachers involved, he did it all by himself, which was a major effort, of course, to become acquainted and to read through all the literature. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there have been other pioneers also. And currently, it's not really clear to me how many there are, but the number is rapidly increasing. And according to a recent survey, I think, depending on what you call a big history course, there may be 50 or so now in the world.
0: Is that right? So... Is there a big history association and do they have an annual convention or anything like well, that? Is it
1: organized on that level? That's a very interesting question because we are currently in the process of founding one. Uh, but it is still preliminary. Well, but I would I, I would like to join.
0: <laughs> would like to yes, I would very much like to join. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, re- I really honestly would because I, this is some of the most exciting work that I have, uh, I've really ever read. And, um, you know, I studied uh, quite a bit of biology, evolutionary biology, when I was an undergraduate. And I've always tried to integrate that into um, my courses. And I've met some resistance on the part of uh, people in the history faculty, both here and many other places I've taught. So your book was kind of refreshing. And it was also enlightening because it even took it past evolutionary time and into cosmic time. And I found that really fascinating. Um and we'll we'll talk about that in, in 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 just a moment. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the origins of this particular book, Big History and the Future of Humanity?
1: Okay. Uh, well, I think for me, the main event happened when I was watching the uh, flight of Apollo Eight. Now, for quite a few of your listeners, that may be prehistory, actually. <laughs> but so let me refresh that a little. Uh, It was uh, 1968, uh, December. It was the first uh, flight that left uh, Earth orbit and went to the moon, circled it ten times, and then came back. It was some kind of a rehearsal for the later moon landings, which were planned uh, in 1969, and actually very successfully executed, as you know, for sure. Uh, But one of the main things about this flight of Apollo 8 was that it was uh, broadcast live on television all across the world. Uh, So we could actually watch on television, black and white at the time, uh, the launch and uh, transmissions from space, actually from lunar orbit, including a famous Christmas broadcast where the astronauts read... uh, Part the first part of Genesis, as you may know, and Frank Borman, in the end wished us well on the good earth um, that was that was a major event that was watched by probably about one billion people at the time, which was which had never happened before, and all these things had never happened before, so it was a very exciting period of time, the first time that people actually could look back on the Earth and see it as a ball in space. Um, So about two weeks later uh, Let me tell me first That I was sitting in front of our television And I was snapping pictures At the time there were no uh, Video recorders yet That didn't exist And I was sort of convinced that Perhaps Let's say the tapes that were made In in studios would perhaps not be preserved Which turned out to be the case Actually in many cases In Holland they weren't preserved uh, so we, we snapped pictures and then later my dad kicked in and put his movie camera in front of the television and shot a movie, which we still have. And I recently converted it to uh, to computer format. And then about two weeks later, we received uh, the January 10 issue of Time magazine, which had its so-called lunar album. And the first picture in that lunar album was the now famous Earthrise picture where you saw the Earth above the lunar surface at a very stark contrast, black and white, the black of the universe, the gray colors of the moon, and and this blue and white little ball hanging in space. And it, it left a really deep impression on me and also on many other people. So I tore it out carefully and stuck it onto the wall, and I still have it. And it has inspired me ever since to look at the Earth in a different way than I had been doing before and also never been taught to do it any differently. And I think this, this happened to a great many people. It may have been one of the most influential pictures of the entire 20th century, I think. It, it sort of galvanized the um, ecological movement. It led perhaps also to the ex, uh, uh, to people to accept new... Theories like uh, Big Bang theory, plate tectonics, perhaps. It inspired James Lovelock to develop his Gaia theory. So it had many different effects. Uh, And also, as I just said, it galvanized the ecological movement. It made people wonder, what are we doing to our home planet? And it made me worry also. And while studying chemistry, I... I could not really see how I could contribute to sort of solving that problem. So I decided to find out how we got ourselves into this situation. And if that perhaps would throw any light on solving these problems. So I decided first to sort of travel parts of the world. I traveled in, especially in Africa. Crossed the Sahara twice, by public transport, Um, and that taught me awful lot about uh, about life. I have to say, and then I decided, okay, I want to get some kind of a worldview, and the only study that I knew that had a worldview was cultural anthropology, because. Those people would go to places all over the world and and tell us how people lived. So I wanted to go to a society that lived on the basis of self-supporting agriculture to sort of see how that worked, how these people were dealing with nature, whether they were perhaps more careful or at least I wanted to see how it worked. So I went to the Andes and I lived in a little village, the village of Zurita, as I said earlier, which again taught me an awful lot about life uh, and I tried to reconstruct the history of this village uh, for as long as I could, in the end it was about uh, 10,000 years of history of that region and about 500 years of the history of that particular village because it had been founded by uh, by the Spanish let's say 450 years, depends on what you call uh, its history uh, And since at that time, let's say, environmental history did not really, uh, had not really taken off, I had to formulate it in a different way. So I decided, okay, a lot of this ecological thinking and acting is probably expressed in their religion. So that's why I wanted to study a religion. And that proved to be a very good uh, choice. And since, let's say, the local religion had been influenced very heavily by Roman Catholicism, that inevitably meant uh, studying religion and politics. So that's how I came up with that theme. Um, So that's how I sort of had achieved some kind of insight about how such society worked, and it proved to be very similar to descriptions of how other similar societies had worked. So that began to give me some idea of how we had developed from, let's say, gathering and hunting to agricultural stage, and now we're in an industrial or perhaps to some would say post-industrial stage, although we still live completely almost on the basis of products that are produced by industry. uh, And how that works. so that, that sort of gave me an overview, and then the idea came of big history to put it in a cosmic perspective, which meant another sort of wave of new thoughts, new ideas that helped me uh, understand the situation better. But one of the problems was that I didn't really see a mechanism. I didn't really see a general mechanism in history of how all of this worked. And at the time, the Internet had arrived, so I started exploring, uh, for example, Amazon to see whether I could find... uh, Books that had been written about these themes. And that's how I came across the work of Eric Chason, astrophysicist uh, who I uh, just mentioned. And I decided, okay, I'll write him an email and see what happens. So he responded very nicely. And then I invited him to our course. And he came and gave a wonderful lecture. And at the time, he was working on a manuscript uh, that later became the book Cosmic Evolution, The Rise of Complexity in Nature, in which he outlines an approach to, uh, let's say, big history or cosmic evolution, as he calls it, uh, that proved to be very helpful. And the general idea is that if anything emerges, then you need energy to get it going. That that is just as much the case for... uh, solar system as for you and me, for example. Uh, So if you look at all these these energy flows, you can perhaps get some kind of a general structure of how uh, all these things have developed. And one of the very interesting ideas is that if you calculate the energy flows per amount of mass, so let's say you, you measure how much energy the sun is radiating out, and you divided by its mass, and during a certain period of time, then you get a certain number, right? You can do the same with your own body, how much you're eating, breathing, and the oxygen that you breathe in. And it turns out that your body actually has a much bigger energy flow than uh, the sun, which is sort of counterintuitive, because you would expect the opposite, given that the sun is shining so hard. But... We are very, very tiny. Our bodies are so small. And that's why our energy flow per mass, per time, is, is actually higher. And I now call these these, uh, these energy flow power densities, following other people who also use such a term. So let's say the power density of the sun is, is smaller than that of me. And if you just calculate your own brain, it's it's higher again, so your brain actually guzzles up a lot of energy. That makes no wonder why we have a brain at all, if it is so expensive, right? So then I began to see that you could start to structure history in terms of the rise and demise of complexity of all kinds of things, but I still had a feeling that something was lacking. Uh... And yeah, that's just a feeling. Uh, so I, I kept thinking about it for years, and then at a certain point, my my American wife, uh, Gina, uh, asked me the question: "Well, how would you explain all of this?" After I was I returned from a session in uh, spring of two thousand and three, and then suddenly I got some sort of kind of a brainwave. I thought, actually, it's fairly simple, uh, and I realized that what I thought was missing was that every type of complexity can only exist within certain boundary conditions. Sounds like a very simple and basic idea, and it is, but it is important to, uh, to understand that. So, for example, we live on the surface of the Earth with certain air pressure, certain temperature, the right amount of gravity. We wouldn't like to live on a very big planet because we would be crushed, for example. We wouldn't like to live on a very small planet because it would lose its atmosphere right away and we would perhaps float off in space or we couldn't live on an asteroid. So all these conditions are sort of just right. Uh, and this is only one example. You can basically outline these conditions for any type of complexity you want. For example, the sun needs a lot of empty space in order to exist the way it does because it needs to get rid of its radiation. If it it wouldn't get rid of its radiation, then its equilibrium would definitely change. It would not stay the same. So the sun can exist because there's a lot of empty space, and there is a lot of empty space because the universe has been expanding for a long time. So that's all immediately connected, all these things, and a lot more connections that perhaps cannot explain right away. But I began to see that if you were to tell the story from the very beginning using the principle of the energy flow through matter, paying attention to these special circumstances, which I now generally call Goldilocks circumstances, a term that other scientists also use, then I think you get a very neat structure that to some extent, explains how things have become the way they are. So I wrote an article first about this. Uh, It's called How Big History Works, The Rise and Demise of uh, Complexity, Energy and the Rise and Demise of Complexity. And, yeah, it was, of course, not easy to get it published because I didn't know any single journal that would accept it. But fortunately, in Russia... There is considerable interest in these things, and some Russians had just started a new uh, journal in English. It's called Social Evolution and History, and they were very interested. So I was able to publish it there. They did a special issue on big history, uh, and that's how I how I got general ideas published. And then I got some chance to to write a book. Uh, that was great. So it took me another three, four years before the manuscript was almost finished. And of course, I had to find a publisher. And I was very lucky to to find a very competent publisher in the English uh, branch of what is now Wiley Blackwell. Uh, So they accepted it. I think they did a great job in producing the book. And now it exists.
0: No, they did do a fine job. Yeah. thank you for telling the story. That was very, very well told indeed. Let me ask you uh, some questions about some particular terms that are important in your story that might not be familiar to our uh, listeners. Uh, One of them, and the most basic one is, uh, of course, complexity. What exactly is complexity and how do you measure it?
1: Yeah, that is the number one question. Uh, I don't think I have a complete answer to it and I don't think anybody has it actually Um, but what we mean is that a certain entity is more than the sum of its parts and what exactly that more is and how we define it, at least it has some what's known as emergent properties, properties that you could not see in just constituent parts you could say, let's say, the process of natural selection is, is an emergent property. It is not present in, let's say, the genes of, of any animal or plant or microorganisms, although they have been honed by natural selection, but the process itself is bigger than that. Uh, just like you can say well, the process of, let's say, how a society operates is just bigger than all the people uh, individually. So there are these emergent properties uh, and uh, one can one, can wonder about how to characterize it. Can you characterize it by, for example, the number of connections or the nature of the connections between all these different parts? You can, for example, try to quantify all of that and to some extent that may help you to define different levels of complexity but I'm not completely sure that this is the full answer. Yet I'm not the only one who's struggling with it uh, as far as I know. Uh, the, For example, the Santa Fe Institute in the United States that uh, is devoted to the study of complexity has not yet uh, developed a satisfactory definition either. So if these people can do it, then perhaps... Uh, We have to wait a little until someone comes up with a better solution. I agree.
0: But we do, you know, I've read a lot about complexity, actually, and we do have an intuitive and pretty accurate notion of what it is. And we can take any two common objects and say that one is more complicated than another and ask another person the same thing, and they will say the same thing. I mean, if you say, which is more complicated, uh, a computer or a rock, people are going to say the computer probably. Uh, and, and that's right in a way. So um, I, I don't think we should probably fetishize or worry too much about our lack of a concrete scientific definition for these things. Because I was going to ask you about a couple of other terms that are fundamental in the physical sciences, but we don't really have excellent definitions of those, and those terms are energy and mass. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those.
1: Yes, but first I'd like to say that, yes, I fully agree with the intuitive notion of complexity. But as a scientist, you would like to be more precise on that. But yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Well, I think the problems with the term mass and energy is that they are so fundamental that it's very hard to find any terms that are even more fundamental that you could use to define them with, right? That's the <laughs> <Yeah>. central problem. <laughs> so, yeah. so I've opted to say that energy is something that, that changes matter. Uh, that's what you need. Otherwise, matter wouldn't change. And matter is very hard to define. So I've opted for a very practical solution, simply saying it's something you can touch. I cannot really touch light, I think, although I can feel light, but I cannot really manipulate it with my hands. I can manipulate for example a mirror and, and manipulate light, but that is using mass to manipulate it. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so but it is also a, such a preliminary definition. I don't see a very good solution to it because these entities are so fundamental.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean I agree with you completely. When I was reading that passage in your book, I was thinking about um I guess it was uh, it was Russell, or was it Whitehead? I can't remember, but who wrote Principia Mathematica, and they spent a long time trying to define one. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. You know, they yeah. couldn't, there wasn't any way to do it, it, it because it, it's, it's identity. And, and so there really yeah. isn't. I mean, that, you're not going to be able to say anything more about that. And yeah. uh, so uh, I, was, I remember I was thinking about that. You know, you're right, quite right about that. So um, uh, now to the theory itself, and the theory is that... Uh, that all complexity is the result of uh, energy flowing through matter within Goldilocks principles.
1: Yeah, circumstances. Circumstances,
0: yes. I'm sorry. Circumstances. So um, can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, examples of that sort of thing? And what I'm driving at here is another important concept in your book, and that is um, things that are far from thermodynamic equilibrium and the notion of entropy. These all are important concepts.
1: Yeah okay now let's let's say let's start at the moment in the universe where we have already the, the fundamental particles which basically emerge out of a separation between energy and matter if I could say it that way mm-hmm. and then at a certain point when the universe keeps expanding then gravity kicks in as a force and starts to shape matter into galaxies and stars and other bodies also now as soon as there is enough matter sort of pull together, it it, it heats up by by this process because gravitational energy is lost and it's converted into heat, then that creates the Goldilocks circumstances for nuclear fusion reactions to start because most of that matter consists of hydrogen, let's say 75% roughly, 20% or more helium and then the hydrogen sort of ignites and starts Come and convert into helium, and um, that in the core of stars, and that releases energy that is transported, yes, uh, into the into the universe, basically radiated out. So there you find uh, a situation where the complexity of the sun is fueled by this process of continuing energy. It was shaped by gravitational energy. Its its complexity it continues to exist because of the energy relief from nuclear fusion, and as soon as, for example, nuclear fusion reactions would uh, go faster, that would mean the sun would get hotter, it would expand, and as a result, the reactions would slow down, and the expansion would stop, it would contract a little again, it would heat up again. So what you get is some kind of a dynamic equilibrium, it's called a dynamic uh, steady state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that is what the sun is doing right now when I look at it in the sky. Fortunately, it is sunny here. Um, and that is what every star is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is an example mm-hmm. of the sun. And that sunlight that is sort of, let's say, low quality energy seen from the standpoint of the sun, if I may put it that way, reaches us. And for us, it's high-quality energy because it is able to power life. It powers all the plants, all the microorganisms that capture sunlight and use it for uh, converting carbon dioxide into organic molecules. And that is yeah, what most of life on the Earth uh, is based on because that's what we're eating. We're eating solar energy in the end, right? And so that is what is driving us. And so that is a very special situation, again, where we find ourselves on the Earth. If you were to go to Venus, it wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. It's too close to the sun. Um, it's too hot. It's a runaway greenhouse effect there. We would not be able to live there. Mars, it's too far away from the sun. The planet is too small. cannot really... Uh, keep its atmosphere. Uh, so perhaps it is possible for for small microorganisms to subsist here and there, and that's what people are looking for, but complex life like ours is impossible. So we find ourselves in this Goldilocks zone in the solar system, just the right amount of sunlight, uh, the right planet, uh, with water, uh, and over the course of time, let's say, life has developed enormous diversity. And on the one hand, you have all these little microorganisms that have been very successful in surviving 3.5 billion years of natural selection. and On the other hand, we have very complex organisms like ourselves. And I think the main difference between ourselves and all the other organisms is that we have created unprecedented amounts of complexity ourselves, just looking around here in Amsterdam, looking at all the buildings, the the trains running in the distance, of course, the, let's say, the computer that I'm using to communicate with you. And all these things are forms of complexity that humans have created, learned to create over their history. Uh, and that has transformed the face of the Earth, mm-hmm. and we have all done that with the aid of energy within certain circumstances. And also, we have learned to create special circumstances. For example, I'm sitting here very comfortably in a polo shirt. Well, outside it is considerably colder and maybe <laughs> windy, right? But. I'm sitting in a house. Uh, the sun is shining through the window. I don't even need a heating, and it works really well. And that's all Goldilocks circumstances that we have created. Just yeah, a small example. But if you look at what we've been doing, we've tried to create lots and lots of Goldilocks circumstances that are favorable for ourselves, not always favorable for other species or other humans. That all depends. And we've created. I would say two types of complexity. On the one hand, the more passive complexity, like, for example, my book. It's just there. It doesn't do anything. On the other hand, for example, the computer that needs a constant flow of energy in order to do what it is doing, namely keep our Skype call going. Um, And uh, so we have, let's say, what I call power complexity, things that do things. Uh, and things that are just there and especially the things that do things uh, that type of complexity can be characterized with power density that's sometimes a lot higher than anything nature has achieved for example if you calculate the power density of the space shuttle engine that is just magnitudes uh, higher than than anything else (laughs) Uh, So that is a very special human achievement, and that makes us also understand that we can do this on the basis of the energy supplies that we have learned to tap during the last past few hundred years, mostly fossil fuels. And that raises the question immediately, well, what kind of situation are we going to face? Would we have enough of these fuels in the future? What kind of yeah. Uh, entropy is this causing? Because any process that generates complexity also creates less uh, more disorder elsewhere. That's inevitable. That's the second law of thermodynamics. So uh by creating all this complexity, we all so creating a lot of trash, a lot of mess, basically. Uh, would we be able to control that problem also? Would we be able to recycle our stuff, in other words, which would also involve the use of energy? And would we have that energy?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I wanted to hear you talk about, and I'm glad you introduced the word uh, entropy, uh, is that any process that results in complexity has to fight entropy or export Entropy, And you talk about that in terms of very disparate objects. One, for example, the sun has to export a certain amount of entropy, or as you put it, trash. And, you know, (laughs) not not to be too crude about it, but when we eat, we have to export a certain amount of entropy as well. So in a certain sense, all complexity is a fight against entropy.
1: Is that right? Yes, that is correct. And that's not a new viewpoint at all that was realized by the... Some of the pioneers who developed thermodynamics, uh-huh. right? Yeah, no, I th- about 100 years ago already. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, so then, um, you, you know, I mean, this brings to mind lots of things. But there is complexity of any sort—that is, the non-green or the green sort—all comes at some cost. It has to necessarily produce waste. Yes. Yes. No, and no, I think that's a very, I think that's a very insightful thing to say, uh, because we're creating a lot of complexity, but we're not really dealing with the trash.
1: No, quite That's what often, I would say. You know, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, we're starting to learn to recycle, but it's still very modest, I think, in terms of what I think would need to be done to ensure our long-term survival on this planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
0: So I, I wanted you to um, to give uh, what I would call a, the briefest possible history of everything, and that is take us through the main stages as briefly as you can, of big history, starting with, I guess, the Big Bang. We can't talk about anything before then, can we? No, I don't no. think so. But you know, how many minutes? Uh, uh, well, I, you know, you just go ahead. and okay. you, know, uh, you just talk about the main,
1: sort of this, the main okay. periods. Okay. Well, I would say it starts with the uh, origin of the universe, which actually, according to the latest view went very quickly. It took only a few minutes for all of matter to emerge out of let's say an undifferentiated mass of matter energy and it happened while the universe was expanding very rapidly and it has been expanding ever since. Then it took about 400,000 years roughly for the positively charged and negatively charged particles to find each other and become neutral that was a very important stage because at that point that meant that the radiation that was also present in the universe in the form of energy radiation is energy uh, could suddenly sort of travel unhindered it was no longer scattered around by all, especially the negatively charged particles, the electrons uh, so that that radiation started to sort of yeah, move around in the universe and we can still detect that uh, now, at a very uh, low temperature, about 2.73 Kelvin, as background variation, that is one of the main pieces of evidence that we have for the uh, for the Big Bang scenario. So then it took, a, depending on, that's not completely sure, but let's say 500 million years to 1 billion years for the first galaxies to form, and in the beginning lots of heavy stars formed because it was simply a lot of matter, so they shone very brightly and then collapsed very quickly because big stars used the fuel up so very quickly that they don't live very long. Uh, So that meant that in the first stage, a lot of stars uh, exploded very quickly, and in that process, the heavier chemical elements were made. During the Big Bang, only Let's say the light elements were made like uh, hydrogen, helium, but in stars also heavy elements were made. So after that process had proceeded to a certain point and the stars had basically scattered their uh, material through the galaxy after at the end of their lives because they explode spectacularly form a supernovae, then that sets the conditions for new uh, solar systems to form, so stars, with planets, and these planets can consist of other things than only hydrogen and helium, heavier elements, so planets like the Earth. And that created a situation where actually on such a planet life could emerge. Now, we don't know of any other planet where life exists, so as soon as we start talking about life... In big history, basically, we have to say goodbye about to the rest of, of big history of cosmic, let's say, environment, simply because we don't know. So then we start talking about the Earth, and we can look at the emergence of life probably in the oceans near black smokers, where there was a continuous outpouring of energy and matter that also perhaps the black smokers or the rocks close to them provide a sort of good catalyzing catalytic conditions for little cells to form. So perhaps at a certain point, cells bubbled out there and started life on their own. The, I think one of the major transitions must have been a process where that cell learned to extract its own energy from the environment, own energy and matter that it needed for its survival. But as soon as it had learned that, then it could multiply and... Uh, basically, diversify in a process of competition and natural selection. And over the course of time, that has sort of very much influenced the planet, uh, the surface of the planet. So it's, it's very hard nowadays to make a clear distinction between, let's say, geology and biology, because biology has completely transformed the surface of the Earth. There's no place on the planet that has not been touched by life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as that in, as part of that process, human societies emerge. us say, special apes. One could say that first learned to use tools. Then that led to a sort of a feedback mechanism that they got bigger brains because it paid off to have tools. Yeah, you have you need bigger brains to have tools, but if you have it, perhaps you can catch more. Uh, Prey. So in the end, that is a survival advantage. The same happened with the domestication of fire that people use as uh, for for cooking, for and as a result for uh, getting access to more varied diets. And you could suddenly eat plants that otherwise you couldn't eat because they were defending themselves as poison, but as soon as you cook them, that may be gone. Uh, etc., and also you can keep people at a distance, you can attack people or animals with fire. And at a certain point, people learned to uh, transform the environment by selecting the plants and animals that they wanted themselves, or they didn't have to gather them or hunt them anymore, they started cultivating them. And that led to the, the rise of agriculture, an enormous transition in the Earth, earth history, where suddenly one species started to basically harvest ever more solar energy through plants and animals that they selected themselves. And that made possible over time, you're now talking about 10,000 years ago, but then about 5,000 years ago, it it allowed for the formation of states. And that means that in certain situations, people were able to extract energy not from plants and animals, but from other people right Mm -hmm. and it all depends whether it was an equal or a less equal exchange, we can discuss that a lot but over time it certainly leads, evolved that we're able to to sort of get access to considerable uh, energy flows and matter flows for other people Uh, that led to states, warfare uh, pacified areas increased trade, what have you. And I think the next big transition was the Industrial Revolution. That's nothing new, but it was also an energy transition. I think that is very important to understand, that that people suddenly tapped energy resources, which had been produced during earlier areas in Earth history, especially during the Carboniferous, for example, when a lot of coal layers uh, were formed. And now we're using this up, this basically some kind of a uh, yeah, leftover amount of, of solar energy, stored solar energy uh, that we're suddenly using to power all the complexity that we are creating now. But the projections are that we may have, let's say, 100 years, perhaps 200 years of fossil fuels left. And that raises the question, what are we going to do then?
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a, that was very well done, Fred. Because uh, that was about a billion years a minute. So, okay, yeah, <laughs> that was that was that was really terrific. Thank you. Um, w- one of the uh, questions that I had when I was reading the book, and this is something that's fascinating to me, is you note a parallel, and it is between uh, biological evolution and what I guess we might call cultural evolution, and that is uh, not only increasing complexity over time. But that the rate of the increase of complexity is also increasing um, How do you explain that?:
1: Yes, so what we see is a process where let's say the developments are speeding up. Uh, if you look at let's say biological evolution, and it is what, two and a half billion years of, of little cells, and then suddenly 540 years, 40 million years ago, then complex Uh, organisms evolve, and then you get all these these, these changes that biologists usually consider evolution. The uh, period before that is quite often not really seen as very relevant because you can't find any fossils. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, it has been speeding up, one could say, and you could say, okay, well, at least the the, the range has been uh, expanding and say the more complex animals have become smarter, progressively. I think I think we're smarter than the dinosaurs, <laughs> although I don't know how long we better we'll actually live as long as the dinosaurs, but at least we're smarter uh, in, in manipulating the environment. Uh, so that has happened, and you see the same in cultural evolution, where you have a long period that, that there are small bands of humans sort of living in all these places, and then as more and more people are communicating, then knowledge gets exchanged quicker and quicker and as a result the process speeds up and especially with printing and now with computers and the internet the speeding up is just phenomenal so it is basically a feedback process where uh, uh, where these developments go quicker the, m- the more there are and uh, the more productive these, these these feedback processes are for producing Newer species, newer situations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it may, yeah. But it may collapse again.
0: Yeah. No. What I was saying is, this is a little bit counterintuitive to us because most of the most of the processes we're involved with, and that is the, um, as you put it, the the passage of energy through our own mass, don't work by that feedback logic at all. Um, we put one in and we get none out. Uh, in the process like this, you put one in and you get two out. Uh, so i can i can see why this is a little bit hard for people to wrap their minds around these sorts of uh, these sorts of uh, spurts of exponential growth um the kind of the kind of growth curves we're used to are relatively um straight but these these are not i, I mean i find that parallel re- really quite fascinating um as somebody that has tried to study cultural evolution and i think it bears a lot more um a lot more thought, so let me ask you this, uh, which is sort of a, as we would call it the money question in the book, and you talk about it at the end of the book, where, where are we going with uh, with our own complexity? Can we maintain it
1: uh, I'm not so sure uh, I think there is enough energy in terms of solar energy in different forms let's say direct solar energy, wind energy, perhaps wave energy to some extent or other forms of thermal energy where you exploit difference between, let's say, the upper layers of the ocean and the lower layers, and you use a temperature difference to extract energy. There is enough to keep a certain amount of complexity going but it will be more expensive we can see that right away because if it were less expensive people would be doing it immediately <laughs> but it needs to be subsidized yeah. in order to get it uh, going so that means it's more expensive and that's a big difference from let's say the industrial evolution where these developments were considered an advantage uh, so that's why the process went all by itself it didn't need to be subsidized um, at least not in the, in the countries where it uh, originated. Uh, the, let's say the people who were uh, sort of late adopters, they had a more difficult problem. But uh, but the, So there is probably a considerable amount of energy, but it is more extensive. It will cost more. Uh, so it may mean that we have to sort of step back a little in terms of what we can expect from life, Uh but we also have to realize that in many countries on this planet, people live with far lower energy uh, uses than, let's say, American society does or many European societies do. And they're able to survive also. Uh, so we need energy to, to maintain our complexity, and I would certainly sort of applaud uh, any initiative that, that would help us establish, let's say, the transition to solar. Uh, I'm not really sure whether it will be enough. Time will tell. I really hope so.
0: I mean, an- another option that people mentioned in terms of dealing with uh Energy shortages, and as we would put it, the reduction of complexity is in fact just voluntarily reducing complexity. But it seems to me that, uh, uh, historically speaking, that uh, either complexity increases or it ends. Um, that in fact, what you find when uh, nature has forced a reduction in complexity, or humans have attempted a reduction in complexity, or one has been forced on, then that you've seen a kind of uh, catastrophic decline in um in in complexity empires when they end they don't end slowly they fall apart very quickly
1: yeah, that may happen and and one of the reasons that I think that uh, let's say a voluntary decrease in complexity is is not so easy is that let's say as part of the mating strategy of humans let's say for females it is a good idea to have a a partner who commands some resources so you have a safe future for your children and so you hope. So that is a major reason of why uh, it is important to have at least a reasonable access to resources as a man. That that is simply a fact of life, I think. Mm -hmm. So that has to be taken into account.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm reminded, so Yes. I was going to say, I'm reminded a little bit. I teach a class on military history, and one of the things that uh, people that study military strategy will often say is that the most difficult thing for an, a military unit to do is retreat. That yes. It's, it's really very hard to do it um, because. You want to run, and you can't run. If you run, then all is lost. Uh, so, I think this is kind of a parallel situation, that, that, in fact, when you see a reduction in complexity like this, it usually is catastrophic. Let's hope it's not in our case. Let, let me ask you about one more thing before, uh, we're, we're rapidly running out of time, but I was very interested in the distinction. Um, the, You mentioned complex adaptive systems, and that's what they study at the Santa Fe Institute. And these are things like ourselves. We are an adaptive system. But you also mentioned um, complex non-adaptive systems. What
1: exactly are those latter things? Yes. Well, those are things that are to some extent complex but don't adapt, like the sun, for example. It is to some extent complex, doesn't adapt to anything really, just there.
0: (laughs) So these things are just literally running down like a clock. Yes. Yeah. So yes. this, this is would be like your desk clock with a battery in it. It's a it's a uh complex non-adaptive system. It's yes. just going to run out of energy eventually. It's never going to evolve or adapt or learn to find another energy source. No. Yeah, no. And I think
1: and that's what most of the universe consists of. Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. So since most of the universe consists of this uh complex non-adaptive system, is it all going to run down in the end? Is that yes. pretty much and the we, end of it. <laughs> yes.
1: Things well, are going to return to
0: <laughs> to nothing? Uh,
1: yeah, in the very long run, we will run out of, let's say, uh, hydrogen fusion or any other types of fusion. So then, basically, the lights will go out, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the universe it will get dark, <laughs> and then if we believe Stephen Hawking's view of, of, let's say, the decay of of protons and matter in general, then... In the end, all matter will sort of evaporate and we'll end up with completely nothing. But that's a long time from now, nothing to really worry about. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little
0: bit like the economists say when um, trying to project far into the future. I think it was Keynes who said it, uh, that um, in the long term, we're all dead. So yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't really be thinking too much about that. Um, so anyway, uh, Fred Spear, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a it's a terrific book, Big History and the Future of Humanity. I hope that people go read it. And I said I was going to say a few words about that. Uh, I would encourage the people at Wiley Blackwell to try to put out a paperback version of this at a considerably lower cost than the hardback version. Because, for example, I would like to adopt it in the classroom. Um, and I'm sure a lot of other people would too. But the current price point for the hardback is, um, let's just say high. And uh, if we can get that book uh, in at a, at a lower price, I think that the uptake, at least in the classroom, will be pretty considerable. I, I would definitely consider um, a, a, a assigning it to my students.
1: Can I say something about that? Yes, First please. of all, yeah. the, the, the book is available with a considerable student reduction. Okay. So you could, I it's it's about, 25 British pounds right now. Uh-huh. So I think that would translate into $40. Yeah, that's reasonable. Like yeah, that's reasonable. Uh, so that's one. And also, in january of next year they are going to publish a paperback first. that's great that's right i'm really really happy to hear that because i i, I really would
0: you know I'd, I'd love to recommend this book to lots of people and give it to lots of people because it's a it's really so, so eye-opening and such such original work um and i think for people that are interested in history who uh you know we history books tend to be of a piece this one really is quite different and um and I, and I think that it would be eye-opening for a lot of people. So I encourage the people. I mean, I thank the people at Wiley Blackwell for publishing it to begin with. And I think that they have a real uh, um, an economic opportunity on their hands if they can bring it into the lower uh, the lower price point. But enough about economics. That's not our business. So, uh, Fred, why don't you um, end the interview for us by telling uh, our listeners a little bit about your next project or whatever you're working on now.
1: Uh, well, um- What I would like to do next is actually search the literature and find as many numbers as I can find to characterize all these forms of complexity, ranging from, let's say, stars to plants, animals, microorganisms, human societies. See what you can find and see whether interesting patterns would emerge. Uh, In the book, I haven't been able to do that, really. I've only provided a few numbers And the reason for that is that many of these numbers that I found yes, require a lot of uh, reflection because there's so many aspects to it and they may be rough estimates and you'd like to have them sort of refined before you put them in your book because I didn't want to find myself being criticized by using the wrong numbers. So it may take another 10 years to do such a project, but I think that by doing that, very interesting trends would come up. And, I think it should be a project done with with a group of people. And I understand that Eric Chasen is also involved in trying to find more numbers. So, I mean, it seems like this would be an excellent uh, opportunity for cooperation. That's one of the projects I would like to do. Another project is uh, to basically put small subject into a big history project and see what you can gain. That's what we ask our students to do. They may select anything they want, ranging from the iPhone or iPad nowadays to to their little brother or whatever they want to do, and put it in a big history perspective. And you get the most amazing essays. They have to relate it to every stage of big history, and they do it. And it's really funny. Also, I think there are more of these studies... Uh, uh, being produced right now. I, I just saw a book that basically tries to un- explain how you can see all of Earth Earth history in just one little rock. Oh, that's a nice story. Uh, it would help you to understand these things a lot better, I think. So that's the kind of project i like to do. Also, there are many more projects on my mind, but I can't do them all.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I hope that you live as long as the universe... so you can finish all these projects. I really do. Thank you. Anyway, well, thanks very much for being on this show, uh, Fred. We've been talking to Fred Speer about uh, his terrific book, um, Big History and the Future of Humanity. As I said, please go out and buy it if you uh, have a chance and and read it because it's a a very compelling and interesting read. Fred, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very
1: much, Marshall, for having me on the show. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Fred Speer about his new book, Big History and the Future of Humanity. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, Have a great week.